Hey everybody, welcome to Urban Engine Podcast number 18. I'm Matt McClellan. I'm here with a whole slew of people today. We have John Thornton. John, say hi. Hello. We have Tony Eberhardt. Hi. Trey Sharp. Hello. And Brandon Cruz. Yo. Guys, we are excited to have a full room today. Um, John, we want to talk a little bit about what you have going on here with uh, a new program that you're working with Redstone on, the Business Assistance Microloan. Sure. Can you tell us a little bit about that and what that means for small businesses? You know, we're, we, have a, we have an audience of maybe current entrepreneurs, people who want to be an entrepreneur at some point, um, and it, it's very likely that they'll be looking at some kind of funding, right? Whether that is sure. a loan from a bank or some kind of a, a personal seed fund, friends and family, you name it. So where would your product come into benefiting them if they're starting out or maybe need some additional cash in their business? Well, this is a program, uh, first of all, that's a strategic um, alliance with Redstone Federal Credit Union, as you mentioned, and the Catalyst, and our loan fund, the North Alabama Revolving Loan Fund. And it was really uh, initiated to try to fill the gap for those uh, really young businesses, in some cases startups, but it could be an existing business as well that is not able to access capital through the normal channels. Um, uh, specifically banks or credit unions. Um, for the most part, because they haven't been in business for two years, it could be because uh, personal credit scores are an issue and so forth. And so our loan fund is, is a, a community development financial institution, and uh, which are about 1,100 of us across the country. And that's typically the type of borrower that we serve, or the ones that uh, are turned down for whatever reason at the, um, for local banks. Purposes of the loans could be for working capital, could be equipment, um, just the, the boost that so many small businesses need to get started. They may then be able to access down the road uh, banks and uh, traditional lending or uh, angel investors, VCs, whatever, down the road. Um, but this idea actually came from, I think, a conversation that Joe Newberry at, at Redstone had which, with Joanne Randolph at the Catalyst and said, uh, at, at Redstone, we see the, the gap. Um, Joanne said the same thing, working with so many small business owners at the Catalyst. And so they brought us in because we've already been in the business of, of making loans to small businesses for about five years. So it's a really nice partnership and that the Catalyst provides the business advisory services, the coaching. Uh, Redstone provides the funding um, uh, to, to our loan fund, and then we lend that money to the small businesses. And the coaching, both before the application and, and after the loan is closed, is provided by the Catalyst. Okay, so I, I want to kind of step back just a second. Loans are a very intimidating term for most people, right? Like if I'm looking to start a small business, the first thing I'm not looking to do is go into debt, right? I'm looking to make money. So why would I come to you to get this micro loan? Can you explain for maybe some of those who haven't done this before or don't really understand the purpose why they would come get this micro loan? Sure. Well, so many uh, young businesses either start out with personal funds, family, uh, in a lot of cases, credit cards. Um, they might have kind of reached the, the limit on those sources. Um, they feel good enough either about their idea or about the actual performance as a business. Uh, maybe they started on the side and it's uh, been running this business at nights and weekends and so forth and ready to make the plunge. And, th and there aren't uh, funds available from, from those original sources. And so um, uh, they may want to seek out a loan. 
um, to, to, to again bridge the gap in the, for the funding needs. Um, I've been lending money for a long, long time, but the first thing I tell business owners is the, the best thing you can do if you borrow this money is to pay it back as fast as you can and, and minimize your, uh, your debt level. But sometimes you need the boost, you need to get started to get the, the customer base built, the cash flow uh, uh, coming in um, to pay off loans. But uh, uh, I think a lot of businesses look around and don't have those traditional sources in a, in a loan, especially this type loan may be the best bet. So is there a certain type of business that you want to cater these to, or is there a specific way that you would like these businesses to deploy this capital, or is this kind of open territory? No, it's really open territory. We, we have very few prohibited businesses. For the most part, I think we're going to be, in this program, going to be dealing with startups and really young businesses that, for instance, can't access bank loans because they haven't been in business for two years, three years, whatever the requirements may be. Um, and if a small business owner has had some dings on their personal credit because they've been funding the loan, the, their business through uh, credit cards, um, those uh, typically are not going to pass muster with a bank. And so uh, we'll work with those borrowers. Um, um, understand the story behind that lower credit score, but um, we have um, in the loan fund done a lot of restaurants and food trucks. And if we if there's a specialty, that's probably it. Again, because the traditional sources of financing find those too risky, um, and we feel like we understand that that uh, industry fairly well, but. Um, uh, we would love to have more manufacturers, uh, distributors, um, it, any kind of business out there, high-tech businesses um, as well. And um, so there's no real uh, prohibition from that standpoint. Well, and I think that, you know, one thing I like just from kind of seeing this introduction to your program here is that you're not just blind lending. And there's, let's be honest, there's no blind lending period, right? There's a lot of research behind it. But you're, you're also offering these monthly loan clinics. You're, you're offering these uh, business coaching opportunities and uh, things to ensure that they use this money in the best way also, right? Yes, and I think that's what sets us apart, both as a loan fund and through this BAM program. Um, we know that... Um, the more help and guidance and support there is for a small business owner, the more likely they're going to be successful and the more likely they're going to be to pay our loan back, which Absolutely. is what we want. It's a revolving loan fund, which means that the money that comes in through uh, loan payoffs or, or even loan payments, we then lend to someone else in the small business community. And is there a certain amount that you focus on for these loans? Is there a cap on what you're looking for to kind of help them? For this particular program, uh, we're looking at loans of 5,000 to 25,000. Um, if the borrowing needs, however, are greater for a certain company that, that, that may come through this program, um, it, it, the loan fund, our limit is 250,000, so that even though they may not qualify for BAM, um, we could certainly accommodate them uh, through other programs that we have, other funding sources that we have. Okay. Well, that's great news. And I, and I think that, you know, again, for those that are listening, you know, there, there's, a, there's a lot of hindrances 
and, and a lot of them due to capital when you're first starting out, right? Or maybe you're hitting that next step. And so trying to find a way to fund past those hard edges um, so that you can grow. I mean, as you expand and you grow your business, a lot of times there's just, there's hurdles. And sometimes those are financial hurdles. And so something like this business assistance microloan could be a big help there. So. Absolutely. We, we deal with a lot of lifestyle businesses, too, that, that are ready to take the next step up and uh, expand their business and they need um, capital as well may not be for whatever reason bank credit worthy so uh, it's not just for startups but okay. uh, um, um, those um, they want to take the business to the next level as well sure and so if they're looking to get in touch with someone for this program how what's the best way for them to reach you or, or find out more Probably the best first step is is the Catalyst website to register for the workshops. And then, um, and I teach one of those uh, workshops myself, and uh, they're assigned a business coach. Um, and at the actual loan application, the business coach can help them with. And so that's probably the best first step, uh, either a call or uh, go to the website of the Catalyst. And what's that website? Uh, www.thecatalyst.com, uh, I believe. Okay. Uh, that's catalystcenter.org. Okay. <laughs> Excuse me. Close enough. <laughs> catalystcenter.org. That's C-A-T-L-Y-S-T-Center.org. <laughs> okay. Awesome. Thank, well, John, I didn't pick up on that. Thank you so much for joining us. Uh, we did want to kind of get some information out there on some funding sources, and so I think this BAM program that you guys have going on, uh, between Catalyst, the North Alabama Revolving Loan Fund, and Redstone is a really good thing for small businesses in this area. Well, thank you, and thank you for your time, and um, we hope that uh, uh, this will generate some more leads for us. Absolutely. All right, thank you, guys. Thanks, John. Well, it was awesome to hear from John and kind of how they can help affect the startup community and the small business arena, um, but I, I wanted to dig in a little bit more into the small business side of things and talk about how to sell your baby all right trey you've recently just gone through this like you said you've right. been in this business for 25 years now right yep. brandon you've been through this a couple times now mm -hmm. uh, on a large scale and um, you know i think that as a small business owner myself i didn't like open the doors one day and be like you know one day i'm going to sell this thing yeah like, that wasn't my my vision for the company right and so what does that look like from you know you, you started the business as kind of a second second tier entrepreneur coming in to grow this thing, Trey, and to later sell it, you know, 25 years down the road from when you began, right? Mm -hmm. um, what what changed in your mindset over time that you're like, you know, I think I'd like to sell this thing. You know, I don't. I think a lot like you. I didn't start out thinking I ever wanted to sell it, right? Like, you know, the the, the biggest thing I think I learn as I get older is like the impact of time and how you change and things around you change and the way you feel about things change in the future, right? And starting out, you know, probably like a lot of entrepreneurs, I, I just had the mindset of I'm going to take over the world, you know, I'm going to go out and do all this great stuff. Yeah. And, and, you know, over time, you know, things that I, uh, that I, that we did, uh, some of them worked and, and went really well and had a lot of things that didn't go so well, you know. Um, but you know, I think, I think at least with me, I feel like I probably had more misses than hits, but you know, the hits usually make up for the misses, um, and then some, so, you know, but anyway, I guess I got to a point a few years ago where I just kind of started feeling plateaued out, you know, it was kind of like, I think every business you kind of get to this, uh, you call it, we weren't big numbers, but you get to that kind of law of big numbers thing where it's sort of like 
kind of whatever it's going to be is sort of what it's going to be. You've kind of tested yeah. maybe some other markets, some other geographies, and you know they they didn't work out or whatever. We had about fifty employees, I guess. We're just under ten million in revenue, and we had been there for uh, gosh five or six years, I guess. And you know, and I, and you start thinking about like you know if if you get unhappy with your your normal job, right? If you're not a business owner, and you you can just kind of go do something else, you know, you can leave and go work somewhere else or whatever. But you can't just walk away from a business you own. So you got to find the right opportunity, um, you know. And I just I, I happened to that there was kind of a, a classic roll up consolidation thing going on in our industry. It's never been going on in our industry before. So I got to talking to a private equity firm and. You know, we just I just found the right deal, you know, for me and, and employees. I really asked myself, I was telling you guys before this podcast, uh, you know, for me, because you get such limited exit opportunities, especially from kind of, you know, mine had become sort of a, a lifestyle business. You know, it wasn't a fast growing business. You get sort of limited exit opportunities, especially at a good valuation. So for me, I asked myself, do I want to do this another 20, 25 years? You know, do I want this to be a 50 year thing? That's the only thing I ever want to do. And for me, I you know, I don't know, you call it that entrepreneurial ADD or whatever, but I'm like ready to go, you know, do something new or learn something new, be a beginner again, right? And and, and be part of that creative uh, early stage process um, instead of kind of being plateaued out. So anyway, that, that's kind of a long answer, but uh, that's, that's how I got to got to got to where I got to in my case. Well, and Brandon, you you sold your first company. Uh, how long ago was that now? In 2010. In 2010. So. That's quite a while, eight years. It was 20. But how old were you, 20? Yeah. Okay. So, and when you first started that business, again, that was just something that you kind of found a niche in, right? Yeah, and I think that, you know, overall, um, if you start the company and you, you haven't really found product market fit yet and you haven't really found or validated if this, if this idea you have even is relevant or exists, um, that's usually a bad time to think like, I wonder who I could sell this to, right? Because it's almost like, you saying like, I'm going to go out and sell this Ferrari on Craigslist, but right now I don't have a car, <laughs> but I'm going to put the ad up and see what happens. Right. You know, like you really, I think that you, it takes such incredible, intense focus in the beginning, you know, to make sure that you're really dialing into the right thing. And then when you actually start to have, um, you know, some traction, it takes even more focus to make sure that you don't get distracted from the opportunities that you do have at that point. That the last thing you should really, I think, be thinking about when you're in that building phase um, and same for Trey, you know, in the beginning, he wasn't thinking about like, uh, and I wasn't either with Dialmax thinking, I wonder, you know, what this company's worth now. Uh, I need to be on the street trying to sell the company. Because that's the other thing I think people don't realize is the amount of work that goes into selling a company is crazy, uh, is wild. You know, for us, the due diligence process was four months, and that was from when they decided to buy the company. I know Trey's was really similar. Mm -hmm. And it's like, uh, it almost, uh, one of the advice that I got from, um, someone that was, you know, helping us through this process was don't forget to run the company. And I thought that was so stupid. And then <laughs> I totally get it now. Right. And so to be in that kind of mindset, I think it distracts you from trying to build a great company and a great product and service to customers. Um, so I, I, re I really wouldn't even worry about it in the beginning. Right. And you started with a, with an initial story of trying to solve a problem, right? Absolutely. And, and then eventually that came along to someone else was like, wow, this guy has solved this problem extremely well. So much so that I think it'd be valuable for us to have his problem solving abilities inside of our company. Yes. I mean, so really, you know, we were, I was pitching this company cause I thought we were going to get them as a customer magic Jack, you know, and I gave them this, my normal elaborate pitch. I think when you're in that size, you know, we're about six million a year in revenue. We have maybe ten people. Um, 
10 or 12 people. So I was still like doing a lot of the, the pitches for like large customers. And um, yeah, I mean, I pitched my little heart out, you know what I mean? And then he basically messaged me back like, okay, we'll, we'll give you a proposal tomorrow. And I'm like, that's strange. I thought we were supposed to a new proposal. <laughs> it was so, that's just an example of like how out of frame of mind selling was, you know? And then I was like, there's no way I'm not, I'm not going to do this. And then they're like, well, we'll offer you essentially 12 years of what you would make if you were to continue running this company, but we'll give it to you today. And that kind of goes back to tracing a little bit on time, you know, which is like, we'll give you 12 years of your life, but we're just going to do it today instead. 12 years of what those earnings would be. Um, and it was like, okay, that makes a little bit more sense. Yeah, absolutely. And, and so Trey, when, when someone did in your recent deal, did they come to your door first or did you see this going on and kind of reach out to them and go, Hey guys, I'm thinking about putting this thing up for sale. You know, I had gotten to know them because they had bought some other businesses kind of like ours. Um, our industry, we were, um, kind of public safety communication like two-way radios and stuff police fire uh, for folks uh, who are listening who might not uh, know what shark communication uh, is or was Um, so our industry was kind of going through and and you'll see this in a lot of industries right it was kind of going through a roll-up like uh, fm radio stations did in the early 2000s they all used to be independently locally owned um, tire stores oil change places a lot of these industries have kind of consolidated right so um well, so I, I had gotten to go ahead. Well, I was just going to say, that's, that's a really good point. I think a lot of people don't realize because um, you see an acquisition like Facebook buys Instagram or something. Right. And you're like, oh, OK, you know, how does that come about? How do they establish valuation? And for the most part, that's really not relevant to um, the main world. Right. That's, those are like little outlier events. Normally, there there is a whole there's a few different kinds of acquisitions. One is like a strategic strategic, um, which was what it was kind of in our case where it's like we think that we can benefit from this product as a bigger company that's doing long distance and we had long distance cost savings kind of solution. Um, in Trey's case, and this is this is a really common one uh, for private equity, where there are companies mm-hmm. that go out and they basically formulate a plan and they go raise money and they say, I bet we can go buy a company like Trey's and maybe three or four more that are very similar and benefit from an economy of scale um, and sell it for a higher multiple later on, maybe in three to seven years. There's a massive industry called private equity. That that's really all they do. Um, and it's a beautiful model. You know, it it's, is. it's fairly low risk because they're buying already profitable businesses. And that's the big difference, right, is that it, like, it is completely based on your EBITDA. Yeah, you know, exactly. So if you don't have any net profit in the company, a private equity deal is impossible. Yeah, it's, it's kind of perfect for these lifestyle-type businesses yeah. lot like like mine or, or, or other industries where you would otherwise be maybe, you know, like if Matt, if you want to get out of the nutrition business, you'd be like, well, I don't know, maybe there's this guy in Birmingham or this guy across Huntsville that kind of does this. And maybe, you know, maybe I can get him to come yeah, pay like they a have year or two of profits or something. Yeah, they don't have enough significant access to capital to give you a, a big multi-year EBITDA um, kind of exit. So, but, so, you know, to answer your question, I, I'd seen these guys had bought, I don't know, eight or nine companies like mine. I had gotten to know them at conferences and stuff. And uh, I, I sat on an industry council and some different things where I was interacting with them. We just kind of got to know each other. And That's cool. the, uh, the the chairman of the firm reached out to me earlier this year and was like, hey, you know, are you would you be interested in talking about this? And, um, you know, and I don't know exactly what's going on right now. I mean, this is a bit of a sidebar, I guess, from my personal story. But there seems to be something going on this year where there's like record amounts of M&A activity. Yeah. All of my advisors I talked to in this process were like, I don't know what it is. So anyway, a lot of M&A activity. And this was like 
whenever I tested the waters at all before or just, I mean, I'm like a business guy, right? Like if you guys like this shirt, like we can talk about a price <laughs> for it. You know what I mean? So, I mean, I've listened to offers before and this was just like far more than anything I'd ever heard before. So, um, did you roll over any equity? No, no. no I, I mean, I've, uh, I've got like a, um, uh, they've got a debt with me. I've got a note to them oh, right. or whatever, but that's it. I, I don't have any continuing equity in the business. So, so that's pretty common. Um, like in the Divas case, uh, they wanted to manage to roll forward equity because they wanted to continue running the company. And this is usually when you're at the front end, like for the first handful of companies they purchased, they probably wanted the CEO and the, and the current, the current CEO to stay on board, yep. you know, but as they get further down the line, it's like, well, you know, we, we understand this market well, right. you know, we have people that can execute things well, we're just going to acquire the company, um, you know, probably some talent, the customer base, and then continue to operate it. Mm-hmm. And, and, that's, and that's a brilliant thing. I think that regardless of, of the path that Trey wanted to go down, building the business that doesn't rely on you is uh, incredibly valuable. You know, even if you never do anything, building the business that doesn't need you every single day to survive is I think a really important part of trying to get to that next level. I, I think that's a really great point. And like, that's my number one piece of advice to any, um, say mid to later stage entrepreneur. Now, if you're not just the true startup person is like, make it where it doesn't depend on you. Right. Cause, cause you win either way. Like if you want to sell, that gives you the freedom to actually sell, um, and be able to kind of be done with it more quickly and not go work for somebody else. Most, most entrepreneurs, I, I think I would be a terrible employee. Right. Me too. <laughs> um, but then also, if you don't want to sell, like it gives you the freedom to you can go build something else or do something else if if the business isn't depending on on you to be involved in every little detail. Right. Yeah. And I think, you know, for, for those that are listening, guys, can you elaborate a little bit more on making it where it doesn't depend on you? Because for some people, that's a really scary feeling. I know for myself, just extracting myself out of the day to day was a really hard, like probably year-long, two-year-long transition to get me out of the day-to-day on the sales floor to more of managing operations in the business. Well, and to to transition from, I mean, I think the majority of the people who are plugged into Urban Engine in some capacity are still exploring the potential of entrepreneurship. And so the ideas or the business that you're currently launching or growing is probably very personal to you and something you're passionate about. But if you are to be successful, either in the way that you can start something later because you have the freedom or because you can sell and start again, you know, what is that mindset transition like? I think it's, it's really about having the right context you know, for me, uh, a quote that I like is don't compare your beginning to someone else's middle. Mm. And it's like um, in the in the beginning, like with what Matt was saying, don't uh, if you really are the, the solopreneur right now and you're still, you know, we say product market fit, like, you know, finding to see if this the thing that you're building and the, and the problem you're fixing is really a significant problem. Um, like at that stage, you shouldn't be trying to remove yourself from the business. You know what I mean? It's too early. And I think a lot of times the, in the places that I failed, uh, in companies, a lot of times I tried to take a step too early, like before I was really there, you know, because you like, you listen to someone like Trey and, you know, you try to consume all this, the, you know, podcasts and these me- this media and you're like, okay, you know, but you don't realize how long the time span is. Trey's talking about 25 years here, you know, and, and then in the last handful of years, uh, he was like, I'm going to transition out of yep. being on the day to day success. Right. Trey. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's right. It's that's the longest right. night of his life. Right? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Yeah, and I, th- and I think that's a good point. You know, Brandon, we've talked before how, like, a lot of times starting out, like, with Apparel Lab, 
I got my hands really dirty and like put myself into all of the things almost where I couldn't handle it just to see what I did need to put my time towards and what could be offloaded. And then also yeah. understand all of the ins and outs. Because yes. I think too, when you start handing things off that you don't fully understand, that's also where you run into some trouble too, right? One of those weird like things that I always hear from people, it's like, oh, well, that doesn't scale. You know what I mean? It's like, you don't need to worry about scale. Like at this point, you shouldn't be thinking about scale at all. You know, uh, and we even have a process still in common sold where it relies on a physical person reaching out to someone to get a two factor authentication code to build an application for them. And that's OK. We don't have tens of thousands of apps like yeah. you can afford to do that, even at the stage that we're at now, you know, 20 ish people like um, that still makes sense to do. It doesn't need to scale yet. Uh, yes. Yeah. You listen to the Airbnb guys and like. Yeah, early, a, yeah. early on, they were knocking on the doors of their hosts and, and taking, going, taking the photos themselves that they had this process. Even once they got past that, like the host would like email them the photos yep. of the house and they would like by hand go put them on the website and stuff. Yeah, because you're validating at that point. Yeah, exactly. You know, it's like you're seeing like, does this thing really work? Uh, but what's cool is that if that wouldn't have worked, you know, the alternative is you build this big system, you spend a whole bunch of money and you never actually talk to customers, which is like the biggest mistake ever. <laughs> uh, and then you go to market and you're like, no one wants this. Uh, but they pivoted many times when they were just, you know, hey, email us some pictures of your uh, your house and we'll try to get it rented. Uh, that was literally like, um, that was so validating because they were able to be on the front lines, just like what you were saying, Matt, be really deep into the process in the beginning, you know, I yeah. think is important. But like what Tony's saying, that, that mindset changed from, you know, the early founder to an operator, uh, someone who's, you know, executing the business as the president uh, to an exit is, um, I think, three totally different mindsets. And for me, I know after Magic Jack, it was it was very difficult. I was the worst employee. Like day one after the sale, I started a new company, which is a horrible idea. I, uh, looking back on it, I shouldn't have done that. It was it was more young Brandon. And, and I think sometimes we've gotten, uh, I guess it's because of all the like stuff you see in entrepreneurial media whatever you want to call it you know it seems like folks are thinking more about the exit at the beginning now than they used to you know and so it does lead to all these oh does the scale and is this going to work in a later well, stage and, company and, and yeah and so much you know so, i mean you and i had a meeting with somebody who is so focused on the exit they never even got started yeah yeah and, and i think you know yeah that's true about, but you know it's one of those things where if you if you want to go into the business with the intent to sell, there's nothing wrong with that. But I think you need to understand what Brandon's saying here and the ins and outs that come along with it. You got to build something substantial first that somebody's actually going to want and that is actually solving a problem. Yes, something and, and of value. Forming a function of business first. Yep, and like Trey's thing, like we're saying, the majority of the deals that are M and A activity in the U.S. Uh, probably in the world are all these private equity type deals. Really, the only thing that matters is net profit. Yeah. You know, so right. if you don't optimize for for making money, it doesn't matter. You know, yeah. like. I mean, it would be great for us to say like, oh, well, we plan to sell to this company in the future. Well, like that company doesn't know about your plans <laughs> or care, <laughs> yeah. you know, and like, uh, but if you, if you build a company that does have value and is generating uh, profit, then there's always a buyer, which I think is really fascinating. And, yeah. and, and you're in a position of strength there, right? If like, you don't, you don't need anybody don't to, to buy you necessarily, you know, you can, um, and you don't need to go raise more money or anything. You can just keep going um, like you are. So that's I want to awesome. look at that from another perspective here too. You know, you, Brandon, you just said there's always a buyer. So that's a really interesting thing to me, especially when you're talking about these private equity groups, right? They're, they're rolling yeah. up a bunch of these similar businesses to look to sell to someone else. At what point does that stop? There's no one else behind me to buy a business. Um, I would say it will be extremely rare. Like I think that you'll have a massive like market collapse before private equity dries up. Um, just because that, that is an alternative that's been so successful for people for so long, 
you know, some of the, the wealthiest people in the world are, you know, these general partners at private equity firms. Um, at the end of the day, there is always a market for selling cash flow. Now, when the market's bad, the, the multiple in which someone's willing to pay might go from seven to four, you know, and then you might not say like, well, crap, selling for two times or four times what my net profit is in a year or last 12 months, maybe that's not worth it. You know, and then when the market gets better, typically those valuations go up. But there is always someone out there willing to buy. I would say the only stipulation is typically it's somewhere um, like a million dollars in net profit a year or more. Um, just because there's just, you know, the cost of doing a deal and bringing in financing and, and being able to roll up. So typically, that I've seen that as kind of like a floor. Um, but it's like Trey was saying, as long as you're, you're building a company that's profitable first and not listening, I think, so much to the Silicon Valley echo chamber that's a lot like... You know, you, you just hear about these companies. These guys, for the most part, um, 25% of the time, I think that they're complete morons. And then 75% of the time, it's because there is a lot more financial engineering than people realize happening behind the scenes. Like when you hear about these SaaS companies, it's like, oh, they're worth a billion dollars now, but they lost $50 million last quarter, right? It's because they, they've extrapolated out all these metrics to say, I know that the lifetime value of my customers X, and I can afford to pay a whole lot to get them today. So we're willing to go into the red. That is almost not applicable anywhere else in the world. You know what I mean? So, but what's weird is that so much of the material, you know, entrepreneurial material in the world is based on on this, you know, and these stories of these these growth, which is just crazy. I would rather take like a sharp communications path in life all day because the risk of the other path is massive. You know, and if you blow up something of that kind of scale, first of all, there's no like first time entrepreneurs that really do that. Right. And then if you blow up something at that scale, it's going to be really hard for you to do your next thing. Financial right? engineering. I like that term. And it more or less like is overhype for a lot of places. Right. Because who, who doesn't just come in and sweep your legs out from under you? Right. It, yeah, absolutely. This other company that has a better idea that has a better system than you do, better procedures, better team. You yeah. know, those people are going to come and sweep the leg. Doesn't matter what you valued yourself at. Right. And when you're small, I would say like less than five million roughly in EBITDA. Or I mean, that's not small at all. When, when you're like on the small scale of like the larger acquisitions. Uh, then no one's really like looking at you. You know what I mean? There wasn't someone probably in trade space, I would imagine, that's like, we're going to raise a whole bunch of capital and we're going to go pay more money to get trace customers and try yeah. to undercut them just because the opportunity is it, it, too risky. You know what I mean? So again, it's one of those things where people think about this, but they're not thinking about it in the right stage. You know, when most of the time when you're starting a company and even if you, once you have growth, you really don't have to worry about like, uh, well, what if somebody comes in and, you know, pays a whole bunch of money to try to steal my customers? Like customers leave because you don't service them. They don't leave because they were marketed to better, you mm -hmm. know? Yeah. And I, so I think that it's interesting too, and is the way that that sell happens. Like now for, for Trey's instance with Sharp Communications, you know, it went to another mo mobile communications brand in the space already, right? So mm -hmm. that makes sense, right? But a lot of times you see sales that maybe are not directly connected Right. And, and that's what I think is the, the weird thing for people like for in my industry. Right. Like I don't see any other nutrition store brands just like going and buying up nutrition stores. Right. So if I were to blow this thing out of the water and really, you know, produce some numbers, who would be wanting to come in and knock on my door? Right. Yeah. And what would that look like? I think even though it was a, a communications brand uh, with Trey, it was a as a private equity firm behind that brand. Yep. You know, that, that is the majority owner. Yep. Um, you know, so uh, in the case of, you know, Divas with Discount Divas, my wife's company, uh, and them 
uh, selling, you know, this private equity firm essentially has a, th- a theory, you know, a thesis that's like that these companies are profitable. We think we can grow them. We have an expertise in e-commerce. So we're going to go buy more boutiques. Before that, though, like last year, if you were trying to sell a boutique, I think it would have been a little bit more difficult. Um, and typically you would get a little bit less of a valuation. But just like what Trey was saying, as long as there is net cash flow in the company, you can get very good valuations. Like, let's say, Theoretically, that you you have hustled really hard, you turn this business, and you know you're you're doing a million dollars a year in net profit. Someone might offer you like one and a half or two million dollars uh, in cash, and you're like, well, you know, even with taxes, that might not make a whole lot of sense. Um, but if someone comes in and offers you six or eight with leverage, uh, all of a sudden that becomes a lot more attractive, right? So I think that like it's. But again, I love your guys' point that it's that's not what you should be thinking about in the beginning. Uh, and there's so many experts out there. It's kind of like one of my mentors really told me about accountants, right, where I'm like, oh, I'm just struggling with these numbers. He's like, hire an accountant. And I was trying to learn how to do like double entry bookkeeping. And he's like, <laughs> why? There are yeah. so many people that are amazing at doing this. Why would you do that? Like, you're an idiot. And I, it's the same thing with deals, right? There's a whole yeah. huge industry out there to help you along that path when the time is right. That's right. And, and, and I think, and I think to, you know, to answer your question also, like I – I think a lot of it's just timing, right? Like six, seven years ago, there was nobody doing that in my industry, yeah. right? Um, and now there's like two, there's like two firms, and, and they're actually kind of competing with each other. So I was like, man, this is like the perfect time to do it because if you really just yeah. have one potential buyer that's interested in this niche, it's a very different negotiating position than having two, two or more. Or we really ended up with three because there was there was another um, involved, but. Um, you know, so I, I think, you know, you're sitting there like you're cash flow and you're making money. It's like if you just take your time, you just run a good business, the, the, the consolidation world. will eventually come. It's happened in industry after industry. Maybe you want to be the consolidator, right? Like if you feel like you understand yeah. this industry, you could easily, you know, borrow money, get investors, whatever, and go buy guys in Birmingham or Nashville if, if you even wanted to do that, right? But – um I, you know, to me, I think a lot of it's timing, and I also think, you know, and, and generally speaking, you can, you can kind of, you know, sell at any time, and pick your point if you're profitable, like we were saying. But I do think there's a little caveat of if there's a if there's a roll up going on in your industry, if you ever see that happening, you want to really be aware of that and keep your finger on the pulse of that, because early on, the sellers have all the leverage in that relationship, because that that roll up company is wanting to get into your market. You have the customers already, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. They don't have the expertise. They don't have the expertise. But the later stage of that roll up, six, seven, eight years in, 10 years in, and they have the expertise, they've got the volume buying power now, there does come a point where they could just kind of start to come really take your stuff or at least start to really compete with you right maybe they got better pricing maybe they've got some good process figured out and you're just kind of the local guy um but those roll-ups like we were saying about all this stuff like those things they don't no that doesn't start like overnight that doesn't happen in three months that's like a multi-year decade long kind of process but I mentioned FM radio stations earlier. Like, yeah. you do not want to be the last uh, guy in the game of musical chairs. You did not want to be the last FM radio station after Clear Channel and iHeartRadio and all those guys bought everybody. You didn't want to be the last local guy competing with them, right? Um, so, you know, I, that's the the only caveat I'd put on it is that is you know, I, and and some of that comes from personal experience. My granddad had a. Uh, he had a tire store chain here in Huntsville, a chain, three stores um, back in the like 60s, 70s, right? And it's kind of 80s. It, it started to kind of roll up. It started moving to the Walmarts, uh, 
Sam's Club, NTB, all these guys started to come along and, um, you know, and, and he was just kind of like, you know, hell no, I'm not going to sell to those guys. Right. You know, and uh, and slowly but surely over the course of a couple decades, I mean, they just kind of crushed him, you know, like he ended up selling it to his brother. And it's like there's a little store on Governor's Drive now that's got two people working in it. And I mean, they both earn a living and, you know, it's it's a it's a fine business for them, but it's a long cry from. Yeah. You know, when, when you had three, three stores and 30 employees and you could have, you could have exited. And, um, um, so That's anyway, right, I, I think right. that, that roll up private equity thing is just, if you're in one of those lifestyle businesses and you're not thinking about the exits and the, you know, the multiples of revenue and the tech startup kind of stuff, if you're more okay, in the, the real li- world, yeah, if you're more <laughs> in, the, in the, in the traditional lifestyle, small business kind of world. I would just say that's probably one thing you do want to be aware of is just that whole roll up kind of well, because it happens over and over in different sectors. And so I kind of do want to segue to at the same time, you know, we're talking about larger mergers here, but what about for the smaller business that doesn't want to be acquired, but maybe they want to sell it to someone else? You know, what, how much differently does that look? Uh, it's almost the exact same except way less money. I mean, ultimately at the end of the day, um, the way that uh, if I personally wanted to go purchase a company, you would ask the owner to take back a large note, most likely against the business, um, and there would be relatively little cash involved. Um, and that's the, that's the big thing the private equity guys offer is they essentially leverage your cash flow into paying you out um, a lot of money. It's almost like refinancing your house. You have all this equity you built up. Yeah. Uh, and if you have good rates and someone willing to lend you 80% of what the house is really worth, then great. Most of the time, if it's just an individual wanting to do a deal, which does happen, um, th- you know, those are much, much, uh, I would say, few and far in between in terms of any kind of value. Sure. Well, I just see that, you know, I see people out there like, hey, I want to get into business. My wife and I are looking to purchase a business. And I'm like, man, that is a really foreign concept to me to yeah. even think about, right? There's like some people, right? Like I know um, Andy Smith is kind of going through this now where he's like, I want to go uh, into a company that has traction um, and some product market fit, maybe a million in revenue and help them scale because I've done that before. That makes sense to me. But most of the time it's like, I want to find a business that's already running. Um, it's kind of like a myth, I think, honestly. Um you know, uh, in, in, at the end of the day, you're probably gonna have to borrow personal guaranteed money in order to do that deal. Um, th- those I think hardly ever work out. Sure. Well, I mean, it's, it's just kind of a different mentality, you know, cause I, I think about it as we're talking about these mergers, let's say that I was a small chocolate store here in Huntsville, Alabama. Right. And you know, on the large scale I have, how do I get Hershey's to buy me? Right. Yeah. Or how do I find the next person who wants to be a chocolatier in Huntsville, Alabama, right? And, and it's just, it's two different mentalities. And people think in different scopes because maybe they're never looking at that larger scope of, I want to find the big, huge merger and I'm just a chocolate store, right? Yeah, well, I or, think- But maybe they've run a really successful business and this is a great, small, you yeah. know, local business that it they're no longer able to run and it's time for the next person to take lead. It's also worth noting, I think, that um, I, I think a lot of what Trey and I hopefully can can do in this podcast is sort of demystify a lot of the pieces, mm-hmm. right? So one big thing is like private equity is this big firm. And like the, the company that bought uh, Discount Divas and another boutique and potentially some more is just two guys. You know what I mean? So it's like, it's just different than what people think. Like it's just like, you know, Hershey's acquired. I would have imagined a whole huge team of people <laughs> like that they've got an office of a hundred people who just do this all the time. There are some private, like the very large guys are like that, but most of them are not. Yeah. The guys we sold to, I mean, they're basically, it's really almost more like a family office than a private equity firm. Um, It's what kind of one main guy. And then there's, 
don't know, it's five people in the office, yeah. right? It's just um, amazing. Like, you just don't know until you go through this process, and you're like, oh, well, it's just like. And the other thing I think that Trey mentioned before the podcast, which I'll bring up, uh, is just how these people are just people. Like, yeah. you meet them, and you're like, wow, they're, I mean, definitely in, in Diva's case, they're very sharp. Yep. You know, like very, very sharp individuals, uh, but they're just people. Like they need to learn about the business. They need to learn, you know, what you know and, and what can help them understand piece of the puzzle. At the end of the day, I think they're just really good uh, abstract thinkers, which a lot of people are in Huntsville. You know, to think creatively about like, okay, well, now that we really know the numbers, what's stopping you from growing revenue and what's stopping you from cutting costs, <laughs> you know, making more money? And uh, it was just fascinating how um, – you know, when you just get to know these people, like they're just people. They they also get sick. Um, you know, they also have to eat lunch. Well, except for Steve, in case you're listening, he's one of the guys. He doesn't eat lunch at all. He uses these red bars because he's like a machine. I think <laughs> him and Matt would get along really well. <laughs> he's like, every time I eat lunch, it just makes me sick. So I'm going to eat these, this red bar. It's all the nutrients I need. I'm like, okay, I'm going to eat pizza. <laughs> <laughs> hmm. So that, that that's some interesting food for thought there. But, you know, when they do go into this process, I know that you mentioned that it's grueling. Both of you have said this is just a intense process going through for the sale. And it's, it's one of those things, you know, like I said, I kind of titled that like how to sell your baby. Right. Yeah. And it is your baby, right? You've, you've sometimes birthed this thing, sometimes incubated this thing and built it to what it is, you know, and it's a lot of pieces of you outside of, even if you're not in the day to day or you can run without you, as you mentioned, you know, so does that tarnish your view uh, during the sale of your baby or how you feel about it as you start getting into this process? You know, for me, like when I got kind of got the itch to sell, I was willing to listen to sell. It, it's almost it wasn't that much different than the itch to like start a business or run a business, right? It was like, and even looking back now, like it was worse than I expected, the diligence process. I mean, it wasn't, it was not at all contentious or anything. It's just... They want to see a lot of stuff to make sure you really have a business, you know, like you're not pulling one over on them or whatever. And uh, I think Brandon mentioned this before the podcast, but, you know, when when leverage is involved and debt's involved, you've got a a bank, a a third party that doesn't understand your industry at all, that just wants to see dollars and cents that this is a real business and cash flowing and stuff. So, um, so, you know, I, it, it was a, a grueling process that lasted like four months, and it was a lot of like late nights and stuff, um, a lot like starting a business. But yeah. but um, looking back, like I wouldn't do any different because I just kind of – I felt like I found the right deal, and I sort of had an itch to like I want to go do something new, you know. And so, you know, w- when you've got that kind of uh, – probably the same kind of personality that started your business, when you decide that you want to go do something new, like you're going to kind of go through hell or high water, and you're going to do what it takes to get there. But – but it was a, it was it was definitely a, a, an intense process. Um, uh, Brandon, how did you find it in in your two? It agents? was, you know. So in the first uh, deal, it was really um, I would say more on the acquire front. So they really wanted to verify the team. It was a lot of due diligence on the technology, and they didn't really care as much about the customers because uh, in that case they weren't planning on running the business, uh, which was interesting and, and very <laughs> different from private equity. Um, you know, in the in the the case of divas, they cared about that a lot. Um, and I think the first time around, what was important for me through the deal was that um, I got along with the people as who were yeah. essentially going to be owning the company. Because if that's not in line, I mean, there were several dinners that we went out to uh, with divas where we're kind of doing these, um, you know, roadshow sort of and talking to people where we're like, it doesn't matter what the offer was. Like, we're not going to 
work with those people. Um, and I actually thought that the company they ended up going with and this time around was, it was really smart because they were very, uh, and they truly are just nice people. Like they're just uh, very pleasant to be with. Um, they understood the business really well. They actually gave us advice and like, regardless of what, you know, who you choose, you should, you should do these things because we've uncovered these potential opportunities for you. Uh, and I thought that was fascinating, but you know, to Amanda and to myself, first time around, it was a very important, like employees were kind of the first thing, like mm -hmm. make sure everyone's taken care of, uh, you know, luckily in both cases, there was, um, you know, cash involved for employees, um, for both deals, which was good. It's not always the case, but that was great. Uh, and then, you know, kind of second, you turn to your customers, the people who really, in my case, more so than in Amanda's, uh, you know, there were a handful of people, like 12 that made up 50% of our revenue. So, you know, I really want to make sure those people were taken care of first. And they actually even had specific carve outs in the, in the deal. That's like, if we can't perform service that they could take the product for free and all these kind of different things, just cause we tried to, you know, you know, take care of them. Uh, and overall it's like, if you're doing a deal with someone that you can't trust, it's probably going to be bad regardless. But yeah. in the case of Magic Jack, at least for me, um, I still had a lot of control after we sold the business for about six months until they wanted me to step up uh, and be VP. And then I had to step away from the long distance business. And that was actually the harder part. Uh, Cause then like uh, I wasn't as involved with the customers who got me to that point that I was really their account manager um, and choosing uh, what rates they get and what kind of favorable treatment they get. That was no longer up to me. Uh, and that was, that was hard. I would have done that differently uh, going back in the past. So that kind of took the wind out of your sails and in a way, like kind of took the, the, what seems like the passion behind the business for you. It in did. Some ways. It really did. Um, and overall, and Trey mentioned this before, it was kind of anticlimactic, you know, like, uh, like the deal's done wire, you know, comes in, hits your bank. And then you're just kind of like, okay, like, I feel the exact same. You know <laughs> I mean, like there's more money in the bank and that's awesome. But like my, my life's literally the exact same. Right? I, I will um, say that that diligence, you know, it's such a, uh, it's such a long process. It makes the, the end anticlimactic, but I also do want to demystify a little bit of, it's really not a complicated process, or at least in my case it was. And it's a lot of, you're providing a ton of information, right? Like, uh, here's all our bank statements, and I don't know. We we're like tying the bank statements to, you know, cash flow statement or balance sheets and income statements and whatever. But um, it's not like it's not like stuff that you can't do. It's not stuff the average person can't just figure out. It's just no. that, that the average person never gets thrown into M and A space. Like you, you don't go through an M and A. You don't go through how to sell your business class in in school. Um, but it's very straightforward. Yeah. It's, so it's really not, you don't have to be intimidated or, or you know, we're saying, oh, it's, it's bad and screwing and it all that. It was really just but long. Yeah. It's, I it's, think. It's, yeah. And it was much more, you know, instead of saying like, hey, here's our profit and loss, we're like, okay, great. We're going to go to each one of these line items. You know, like your office supplies, you spent $1,300. I want to see those withdrawals in the account. And the whole reason is it's not, it's like trust but verify, right? These people are coming in, and I always try to relate it back to like buying a house. And if anyone's yep. bought a house, I have used the same and got same a mortgage, analogy. but yep. uh, does not have a W 2, then you really know what it's like. If you have a W 2, you don't know what it's like as much because uh, you're just like, hey, here's how much I was paid the last two weeks. And for some reason, the government will give you some money. <laughs> But um, uh -huh. most of the time as a small business owner, you have to, you know, do all these taxes and verify and give them the last two years of tax returns. And sometimes they'll ask for like your profit and loss for your business for that year, even year to date. And so um, all, all they're really doing is saying, okay, we're going to lend you, the banks say, we're going to lend you a whole bunch of money. We're going to lend it to these people to buy your business. And ultimately you're the beneficiary of it, right? So right. you're the person they trust the least. 
So yeah. we're just going to go and verify. Yeah, because they've got no mechanism to come back to you after the fact. That's, like, like you're getting paid, and then this other guy's on the hook for it. There really is no personal guarantee in this case. There's yeah. obviously like a fraud claim. You know, they can yeah. always come yeah. to any time. Of course, yeah. Uh, but uh, besides that, what Trey was saying is a great point. They they borrow money from a bank, a lot of money, and give it to you directly. And then so the bank really wants to make sure that like all they're really asking is, we believe in this business. Can can we make sure that it can pay its mortgage every month? And that's what it comes yep. down to. You know, like every month, uh, you know, Divas has to now pay a mortgage essentially and, and the same with Trey's company. And they just want to make sure that your ability to pay is good. So that's a really good point, Trey. Like the due diligence isn't brutal. It's just uh, in the sense of like it's a whole bunch of stuff you never would have thought of. It's just like insanely um, detailed. Yeah. You know? I, I actually kind of wish I had like been put through that a few years ago because yeah. I would have set some stuff up differently. Oh, yeah, you could have <laughs> had it already, right? Yeah, yeah that's, that's true. right. Uh, at the end of the day, having really good books and a good yeah. like attribution is super valuable. Well, and, yeah. and so that was my next question is, so if somebody is kind of getting to this stage or they find an opportunity for this, like maybe there is an industry roll-up going on, right? Other than you mentioned like having yourself extracted from the business to where it doesn't depend on you, what other recommendations would you have? Like overall, I would say if you want to get a good value, most of these deals are done with what uh, uh, multiple um, LTM or last 12 months. Um, sometimes based on your past year's net profit. So overall, it's like I would cut back like extraneous spending. Yeah. Um, I know that sounds kind of ridiculous, but it really does matter. If you think about, if you let's say you, you get an 8x deal. So every dollar you save, they're going to give you $8 for it, right? So if you can say like, oh, maybe, you know, and, and like, again, it comes back to the fraud, especially once you actually start talking to people, you don't want to do stuff you wouldn't normally do in running the business. But maybe some, you know, more aggressive things that you would have done in like what we call like margin investment, where you would take some of your net profit and like invest in some new venture, invest in some new vertical. Like at the time you're trying to sell, I think you want to show the business is very stable um, and can continuously generate predictable net profit. Um, And so if you can save a little bit of money, I think that goes a long way. And, And just having those books, it also just that in general, like this is probably TMI, but just got audited myself federally for 2016 and like, you know, auditor comes in, like, we want to ask about this. And it's like, you know, luckily, having paid a lot of money to other people, not myself, because I'm not organized. Um, <laughs> you know, the accountants were like, we have this, 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 and they had absolutely everything, right? And it's just one of those things where it just passes kind of the smell test. Um, and I can tell you, I've seen these PE deals fall apart when they get into it. And it's like, well, the owner's oh. personal expenses are kind of mixed in. And then you got to back that out. And what happens is the owner tries to back out too much. And then like, you just start off on the wrong foot. You know, so if like I, I wasn't a fan of this in the beginning and now I am of like paying yourself a salary, try to stay out of the business, have the business retain earnings um, can be really powerful. Even if you don't go to sell, I think it's valuable. Yeah, I, I would agree with everything Brandon just said. I think that was actually something I kind of figured out two or three years ago I was maybe interested in selling, you know. So a lot of the things you're saying um, were what I did. Like uh, Nice, that's smart. We, um, you know. You know, kind of excess profits become sort of like the storage space in your house. Like, you're going to use them, you know, or like you're, you're going to, at least in my case, I was like, well, okay, well, things are going well, so let's go try to open a location over here, yeah. or let's go hire a person to do this or whatever. And you kind of know it may or may not work out, but you kind of feel like you're playing with house money a little bit yeah, um, once your expenses are paid for. So I kind of quit doing all that, you know, and just focused on, focused the business on stuff that I knew worked, you know, yeah. and uh, which incidentally i think made me even a little more bored with the business <laughs> <Good> uh, <point. laughs> even more willing to to get out right but um i you know that was a big thing i and I, you know and i do I mean, it wasn't 
I think all these private equity guys, anybody who's done any significant mergers and acquisitions, and especially the small business kind of space, has seen a lot of owner's expenses and things like that. You know, like in our case, my dad was still on, on payroll, even though he wasn't doing a whole lot with the business, um, which is a straightforward thing because he's paying taxes and all that. But um, I had my uncle doing some stuff in the business. Um, Were you able to back that out? Yeah. Well, so so I started capturing all that stuff, right? Of like, here's stuff you don't really need to run the business. You know what I mean? Like, so, you know, I started categorizing all those as a department called uh, management on the books. And um, so that made it really easy to figure out, okay, well, this part of the business, we really, it, it, it's it's contained and we really don't need it going forward to run the business. But I think a ton of folks don't do that at all, right? Like you're just, you're going along and like you're the business owner and I don't know, you've got like your personal cell phone is like being paid for through the business because it's a business expense and, you know, whatever, different things, you know. Um, you, you know, maybe you bought your, you know, your laptop that, you know, you're going to keep that you bought it through the business or whatever and it's counting against the business, EBITDA and all this stuff. I think a lot of people do that to try to save money on taxes. Yeah. But like the truth is like any good growing business, if you're paying taxes, things are going well. Yeah, You know, like right. I want to pay more taxes next year uh, because the business income grew. You know, yeah. and then like at the end of the day, a lot of, I even see people take that to the extreme where it's like, let's buy a whole bunch of stuff at the end of the year. Yeah. Then it's like, you know, January one, it's like, well, the business has no cash. Like it actually <laughs> could have massively the negative impact, you know, the opposite impact. But I think all that stuff that you're doing, that's not really part of the day to day running the business. Maybe you're trying to, you know, um, I forget what they call it, but the thing where you can do the accelerated depreciation, you can buy like equipment at the end of the year that maybe you don't really need or whatever. You want to have all that captured somewhere so yeah. that you can really clearly show somebody because um, you're not going to get an optimal exit if that's just all kind of mixed in, you know. And, and then you're trying to, after the fact, kind of come back and be like, oh, well, this one, this one's really not part of the core of running the business, you know. And, like, these guys don't know. Yeah. Yeah. And they're like, well, you say this employee is not integral, but what if they are? You know, and you're just, like, writing off their salary. Like, I want I want this back in my net profit. Yeah. Um, so I think having that traded exactly right, having that clean is important. I, but I think that's a bigger lesson overall. Having good books is, is valuable because at the end of the day, it has nothing to do with, like, taxes, which are important, or when you go to sell the company, which is important. But for your own barometer, having good financials, I've come to lean on as a way to drive the business. You know yep. what I mean? If you really don't know your numbers well, it's very hard to get, you like hit a ceiling. It's very hard to get to that next level. Cause you, you start to get to that level where small optimizations have big impacts. Um, it kind of goes back to that staging thing in the beginning, really knowing your net profit, you know, on your first handful of accounts where you're driving to their house and taking <laughs> pictures for them. Probably, I mean, I, yeah. I, it doesn't really matter. You know what I mean? But as you grow, it does become a lot more important as the CEO to have that information to help you drive where you want the company to be. And I think, you know, when I'm talking to these guys um, that I exited to, I mean, they were just like, man, you would not believe there's a ton of businesses, even businesses that they buy, like big businesses, right? That they're just like, man, their financials are a wreck. And it's yeah. like, you know, they said we were one of the cleaner deals that they – they had done. That's awesome. That's um, a big testament to you guys. Yeah, I, I, I was excited about that, but I would completely agree with with Brandon. There is, you know, um, you want to be making decisions based on reality, you know, based on what's really happening, you know, and and if you don't have good financials, it's like driving with a, a, a you know, a, a blacked out windshield or something. Yeah. Like you don't even see if you're on the road or, or or how far off the road you are or anything like that. You're just purely going off feel and guesswork, you know. So That's keeping not where keeping you your be. Financials clean and clear, right? Keeping uh, extraneous spending. They call off. it 
putting lipstick on the pig. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. That, that's one of my favorite statements you made when you were taking <laughs> divas to market. Like, <laughs> yeah. we're going to put lipstick on the pig. I'm like, that's yep. funny because it's a boutique. And, well, anyway. That's a good point, lipstick. And, and, and as Brandon <laughs> said, like, this is probably kind of more like operator, like you're probably cash yeah. flowing kind of stuff. Like early stage, you're just kind of validating and trying to figure out, you know, is this damn thing even going to fly, right? Um, I think but, it's... I think people make that mistake, and this is kind of a little bit off topic on the overall podcast, but people, it's really easy to make the mistake of trying to optimize too early. Yeah. Uh, and what I mean is like saying, we're going to try to cut costs, and it's like, but, you know, you're doing like $5,000 a year in revenue. Like, it doesn't matter <laughs> if you cut costs. You yeah, know? exactly. Um, and, but, but for a lot of people, that is what they know, and that's easy, right? Because you can do something, and you can call up WOW, and you can lower your internet bill, and you feel good about it. And that, I think, is something I've been struggling with a lot recently, uh, feeling good about an action, but really having the time, even like planned time to take a step back and say, even though I felt good about that, that actually wasn't what I should be doing. Right. You know, which is weird. Like your brain kind of tricks, you know, like a little dopamine spike, like good job, buddy. You saved a little bit of money, but like you're ignoring the main piece, right? You forget to, you know, keep the main thing, the main thing. It's easy to do. So, um, okay. I know that both of you have said that, at the end of the day, once you get to the other side of selling your business, that you wake up and you're just basically tired and life continues on <laughs> as you know it always has been. Um, but again, like for people who are just in the early stages of starting and we have many different reasons for starting something, you know, depending maybe you do want to scale really quickly and sell it for a whole bunch of money or maybe you do want to build a legacy company, but... Um, that you pass down through the generations. But if you do sell on the other side of it, there's the aspect of acquiring wealth, right? And so, yeah, maybe life continues. But so what does that do for you? What's yeah. the incentive then? Why sell at all if your life is just going to be the same on the other side? I think like um, I can at least give you a little bit more recent example in the Divas case because I actually really encouraged Amanda to do this deal. Um, and it was really twofold. Uh, and I know Trey – well, I mean, Trey does have um, – a piece in the company because he has a note going forward, you know, so he is tied to the future success of the company and divas is the same way, you know, so man ended up, ended up selling the majority of her stake and discount divas, but on all of it. And it kind of, I think just hits the two birds with one stone. It's like, you're, you're getting what I call, you're realizing the value that you made in cash. So you're like, I built this equity value. Like the company's worth this much. Now I'm able to take that cash, put it in the bank, but also still have equity to roll forward so that if it does become this monster, I'll still do well from it. But if it if Divas blows up tomorrow, um, then she's like, well, I at least got to you know take this off the table. Mm-hmm. I think at the end of the day, it really is about um, you know the first thing is is what you want to do as a founder and, and you know operator. Like in Trey's case, you know he was um, like the operator of the business as well as the CEO, even at the sale, right? Maybe taking a step back. So, a but couple still, years ago, took oh, a okay. step back when hired. I actually hired a company president. In, I guess, 15. Okay, guess gotcha. It was. Gotcha. Yep. So, but you know, so for him, it's like, you know, he'd already stepped back from the business, but there's still that aspect of like, I can take risk off the table instead of yep. seeing what happens in the next 10 years. And it's not that he's not confident in the company. Obviously, he's very confident in the company and has, you know, a note going forward. And I think in general, a lot of business owners are confident in their own company. You know, it's a little bit of pride, uh, maybe some ego, but uh, it's just taking risk off the table. Like in, you know, Diva's case, it's like, well, now if things don't work out, um, I don't have to worry about it. And, and Domax was the same way. So is it peace of mind? Yeah. I think you're buying um, stability. Uh, but at the, at the same time, there's, um, like, at least in our case specifically, like, our life didn't change at all. You know, like, it, it didn't allow something, you know, that we, you know, couldn't have done before. But I think it's very much uh, the peace of mind 
coincided with feeling like you're kind of at the end of the road. Mm -hmm. You know, I feel like if you did that too early, you could have a lot of, um, a lot of regrets about it. And I feel like Trey did that, right? Where he's like, I want to step back from the business, but right now is not the time to sell, you know, for valuation purposes or otherwise. So I'm going to put uh, management in place, which is hard. I, I think that's one of the hardest things, uh, harder than selling uh, for entrepreneurs to do is put build management and put that in place. Uh, but yeah, for at least for me and when I advise entrepreneurs, I, that's the same thing. I, I try to tell them like, hey, Matt, let's say that Matt was getting, you know, uh, seven times EBITDA deal. Like if, if you were to take this deal and then absolute nutrition blows up, right, and you only have 10% of it or 20%, or you weren't to take the deal uh, and in five years from now it went out of business, which one would you feel worse about, right? And for most people, the answer is pretty clear, right? That I would feel worse if I held on to it and I, and I missed that opportunity with the tire store and I went out of business. I would mm -hmm. feel way worse than if I sold it. Like in Domac's case, you know, they grew that company five times the size. And I was like, okay, great, good for you guys. You know what I mean? Um, I, I, because I, I, I played that back in my head. I would feel way worse because today that business would be, non-existent there's no way um i like to think that maybe i would have pivoted to the right thing but i know that i wouldn't have so you know and i think for me you know there's i mean there's a couple answers to that question about i mean i think one of them is like we just all have kind of seasons in life you know you have like a season where you're excited about starting something you know like you're excited about starting comment sold or dial max or you see an opportunity with nutrition or whatever and you grow and you change and the world around you changes and um you know, um, you probably these days, you're probably not going to do that thing for 10 or 20 or 30 years. I mean, you might, but you know, as you, as you get further along, you start to want different things, you know, and, and you, maybe you kind of scratch that itch of, oh, yeah. well, I wanted to solve that problem and the problem's basically solved. I think that's a very common entrepreneur very thing. Very common. Like very rarely is like the person that starts that also the operator. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Like you know? the, the problem solved and now it's really just about optimizing for maximum cash flow or whatever. And it's a lot like, of times yeah. that's different. Yeah. It becomes kind of boring or whatever, you know, or like I, like I had said earlier for me, I just kind of felt plateaued out. That's not to say couldn't keep making money or maybe even make more money if optimized certain things. But, you know, I started looking at, well, yeah, okay. I can take some cash off the table. I can, you know, um, there's a Tim Ferriss or somebody had a thing that they said, um, you know, if you lose money, you can make more money. But it, if you lose time, you can never get time back. Mm, um, so, you know, I, I thought about, um, you know, hey, I'm getting several years here where I could um, I could go do anything. Right. Like, I mean, I can't be in this industry. I, I was actually it was almost a, a feature instead of a, a, a negative to me to have a non-compete because it, it does block me out of, yeah. I have to go do something new, right? <laughs> <laughs> and then, so if I got, you know, it's like if I got several years worth of earnings off the table, like, hey, if I go start something new, I can just, and I'm up and running and something else in a couple of years, I'm just, you know, I'm just in better shape, right? Or or I can just kind of spend some time with uh, family and things that I've kind of, you know, maybe neglected or not done as good a job with, Um you know, while being CEO of two companies for a while. So I don't know. I was telling you guys earlier, like, I, I think, it, you know, after going through the diligence process and then being heavily involved in running two companies, I, I uh, you know, at this point, I'm so just kind of burned out. Like, I, I just sort of feel like I need a couple of months to kind of recover and figure out what's next for me, you know. But, but for me, it's kind of like, and I don't remember, somebody used that with me at one point because I asked them that they kind of left. It seemed like they were top of the world in some position and they just kind of left at the top right and i was like why would you do that you know it's like just seasons in life man like you know you, you know, I get you, it. 
you know, it was just time to go and do something new. Um, well, so it's, a, it's a well-deserved uh, vacation, Trey. <laughs> <laughs> well, I appreciate it's, that. It's, it's, it's earned, sir. <laughs> Thank you. I appreciate that. Well, guys, thanks for uh, sitting with us today and elaborating all this. I hope this was helpful for all the listeners out there. I know it's a lot of information to take in, but... Um, you know, it's also a big opportunity and, and you want to guard that with care. So I think that having some of that wisdom and insight from those who have been there and done that, uh, I think is incredibly helpful. And I'm sure that both of these guys would be willing to answer questions outside of that. If you, of if you had additional questions about any kind of M and A or in selling yeah. your business. Um, yeah, definitely. I, I will say on that, like, I feel like I would be glad to help anybody, you know, that's at that point because like. It is intimidating going in, and you know you're sitting across the table from people that do like, you know, half a dozen or a dozen of these deals a year, and you're like, oh, man, I've never done this, right? So, uh, and and I think, you know, and Brandon said this before about his Dialmax deal of kind of a group of local folks came together and helped him through that. So um, I I know for me personally, it sounds like Brandon as well. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm happy to, if anybody ever just needs some advice, whatever I can give, I'm happy, happy to help because I I sympathize with that situation and, um, you know, and I mean, hey, we're just here local guys in Huntsville, so I think we're always happy to help anybody that, that needs it, you know. Yeah, and if, Trey if talks about, uh, you know, um, optimizing for cash is boring. Talking about helping people through that process is like the opposite. Yeah, that's it right. Me up. It's so much that's fun. Right. Just because, yeah. you know, you've been down that road before and you can help someone with just a little bit of advice, like, and most of the time they don't even really need handholding. They're just like, hey, here's here's the things you should know and the directions not to run, the directions to run. And, you know, people, uh, entrepreneurs in that stage will, will you know, be successful regardless of whatever they do. Um, but, you know, a lot of times it's helpful just to be like, hey, here's this, call this guy. And, like, that's literally his job is to broker these deals and make sure that you don't sign something bad. You know, one of the stories I give is that I took uh, our um, – acquisition agreement which is 50 pages long to this <laughs> local attorney that i had used for general counsel stuff and he was like yeah blah 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 oh yeah it looks good i think you're fine you know and then took it and then my friend was like well maybe you should talk to this guy you know rich marsden he really does he's an m&a attorney that's all he does you know he's not general counsel or anything um so uh went to rich and he was like oh, did you know that you would have to for the next 10 years even if you came up with an idea in a, your bathtub you would have to like mail them a letter and tell them of new ideas you came up with i'm like that's ridiculous he's like i know <laughs> <laughs> you know and then you know struck those agreements struck those things out of the agreement and the other side really didn't care but it was almost like the other side's job to put all those landmines in there you know they put 100 landmines in there and then you know you find 90 of them they end up with 10 and they're happy it, but it's like it's just so outside the scope and i never would have known that if i wouldn't have had that group to just say like hey man this is exciting here's what you need to do you know I just would have signed it, and it would have been bad. Yeah, so I I think it's good to have some help instill some of that confidence for someone who's going through that from someone who's been there too more than anything because, like you said, it is scary. And while it is straightforward and they they have all the answers, it's still a scary process, and they're looking out for those landmines, and they probably have a lot more landmines in their head than there is on paper. True. Right? Well, ultimately, you know the business better than they do, and that's the thing you should feel most confident in. And I know that Trey did. It felt most confident in, you know, his own company. Um, and that doesn't mean necessarily you know all the numbers they necessarily ask you, like, you know, what's your churn rate of three-month customers? You're like, I'm not sure exactly, but you really know the business. You know the industry really well. And most of the time, they're seeking your counsel for that. Uh, so, yeah, don't be intimidated. And I, I would I would love uh, to have someone reach out if they're, you know, thinking about that or going through that process. It's just, again, that's some, not something that you normally learn. Uh, you learn a lot about operating a company, um, but very, very uh, little, I think, out there is about, like, okay, now it's time. You know, and, and you're thinking about selling, what do you do next? Um, I even encourage people to go 
uh, to market as an exercise, just like, yeah, you know, totally. understand your company more. You'll, we learned so much about divas by going through that process because we had to just to prepare that at the end of the deal. And there was a little bit of tension at the end. Amanda was like, maybe I'm not even going to do this deal. Like I feel super confident that if I didn't, I can take it to the next level because all the stuff we've learned, but we, you know, you just never took a step back to learn about your own business in that way. That's like I joked earlier about I'd sell my shirt or whatever, right? But, you know, I, I think going through that exercise would be great for anybody to just get an idea of, hey, what's this thing worth, right? Yeah. I got this business, this asset. You know, what's it worth? And then, I don't know, if you get a general sense, you know, and you're two years down the road and you start thinking about, well, okay, you know, maybe I could sell this thing and get a million dollars or whatever it is, yeah. right? Then maybe you are like, hey, you know what? Some things are going on in my life right now. That seems like the right thing to do. Absolutely. You know? But if you have no sense of, I, I, that, I, that's another thing I, I hear, you know, is there's a lot of folks that have no sense at all of what their business is worth or they grossly overvalue it or, or undervalue, undervalue it sometimes. Yeah. yeah. And I think that, like, you know, people just Google like, hey, I Googled how to op- like value <laughs> my business and this is what I came up with. You know, the most fascinating thing, one of the most fascinating things about the Diva deal was that uh, they had a, somewhere around 30 uh, letters of interest and they were all within um, I think like 5% of each other. Wow. You know, so it's just like the market will tell you exactly what it's worth, yeah. you know, regardless of what you think. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Well, guys, thank you again. Uh, for those listening, if you have questions additionally or want to, uh, us to help you reach out to these guys here, uh, email podcast at urbanengine.org. Again, thank you for listening in. Appreciate Thanks, guys. it. Thanks. See ya.